0: This broadcast is coming to you from Unceded Gadigal Land. I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal Elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Out of the box. Record Collections and Recollections Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio Hey, Mia Hull here on your radio, streaming online or on the podcast This is Out of the Box Every Thursday I sit down with one guest and roll through records from their life and the stories behind them Today I'm joined by Amani Haidar. Marnie is an artist, mother, advocate for women's safety and a writer. She's just published her book, The Mother Wound, which tells the insidious domestic abuse and eventual murder of her mother committed by her father. This episode of Out of the Box will deal with domestic and family violence. And if it brings anything to the surface for you, you can call the 1-800-RESPECT National Helpline on 1-800-737-732. I'll also put links to other support services on the program's page on FBIRadio.com. Amani joins me now to talk about the book and her life and the songs that have soundtracked the important moments. Thanks for jumping on the show today, Amani.
1: Thank you, Mia. I'm excited to be speaking with you.
0: Your book starts off talking about the strength of the women in your life. Let's jump into that. Tell me about the strong women that were in your household when you were growing up.
1: Yeah, so I grew up with. My mum, my sisters and my brother and my father. Uh, At one point, we also lived with my auntie and her husband and my cousins. So it was a big household um, for some years. And unfortunately, my mum and her sister were the only people from my mum's family who were in Australia. But my mum is from a family of nine. So um, they're quite a big family and they're spread all over the world. And my mum came to Australia in the late 80s as a young bride. um, And that was... Just a couple of years. Um, I mean, after about a year, I was born. So we had a um, we had a sort of big family, but a sense of disconnection at the same time because most of our family lived overseas in on different continents. Not all in Lebanon.
0: So you said your mum came over as a bride in the late eighties. Where did she settle when she arrived here? So
1: my family settled in Arncliffe. My dad had already been here for about ten years. And when my mum arrived, she moved into a little apartment that he'd um, been living in and she was so disappointed because it was already furnished and she hadn't really had the opportunity to uh, make, you know, choices over things like furniture and stuff like that. And I think for her that actually represented um, a real deep sense of rejection about, you know, whether her opinion would be valued, whether she would have um, the opportunity to do all the exciting things that she was looking forward to, as as a young bride who really expected that um, moving overseas would get her out of a country which was at the time um, under Israeli occupation, uh, facing a lot of uncertainty, political instability, economic instability, and where she had really limited access to opportunity. So, a girl in the village that my mum was from would not. Uh, generally be given the opportunity to travel to Beirut, for example, to access a university education, Um, wouldn't really have the opportunity to travel until she was married. So there was a sense of excitement and anticipation and then a sort of letdown when she got
0: here. And you said you went back to visit your maternal grandmother in Lebanon tell me about that because she was a strong woman in your story as well wasn't she Yeah
1: I just I I really admire and I've come to appreciate the the older I get the more I kind of appreciate the women and the matriarchs of families that have had to you know like I said live through war live through this um occupation raise all these children farm the land and you know make an income and attend to all these domestic duties and at the same time living under the weight of patriarchy in their own context. So my grandmother was really such a warm comforting presence and when I went in 2017 um, as a teenager, I was about to start high school I had a, you know the usual kind of identity crisis that every <laughs> everyone went through during that period and my grandmother represented to me like that unconditional Love that an unconditional sense of belonging, and also getting to know my heritage and where i was where my family was from gave me a sense of um, belonging to a place that was really different to the type of belonging that i'd experienced here, and a sense of connection to like a community and a network that was very permanent and long lasting and i mean that's you know that's sort of almost a universal experience for migrants and um getting to know my grandmother just made me feel like there was this solid um sense of love and that was gonna be there whenever I needed it. So I I really treasured that time with her and um, you know, eventually we spent I spent five weeks living at my mum's home where she grew up and getting to know my grandmother's cooking habits and things like that and um developing this desire to sort of preserve that relationship and build on it. And feeling optimistic as well that I could and unfortunately um, six months after I got back to Australia uh, war broke out in the south of Lebanon um, and my grandmother and actually our village was one of the primary targets so a lot of people had to evacuate urgently um, eventually when my grandmother was evacuating with some of her family and some of my you know my mum's family um, they were chased by Israeli drones and um, unfortunately uh they their vehicle was targeted, and there was an incident where some of the neighbors were killed, and my grandmother lost her life in that incident as well.
0: I'm really sorry to hear that thank you when you when you talk about that unconditional love that you experienced from your grandmother, did that differ from what you'd had at home?
1: Yeah, I think so i i in hindsight, I came to appreciate that I'd kind of grown up in quite a volatile and tense household and that I'd developed a sense of almost constant anxiety around navigating my relationship with my parents, around mediating between them because I saw them as being um, in conflict with one another. I had a lot of pressure in terms of school. I had a lot of expectations um, about what I would do with my future. Um, And as the eldest daughter, I think that that was like a particularly emphasized um, burden. And my grandmother represented a sort of escape from all that and, you know, didn't have to really be doing anything for her to to, to love or appreciate me. And her life was, she lived at such a, a different pace to what I was used to with a different focus. And that was a beautiful break from from how I'd experienced the world here.
0: That expectation that you're talking about and the way that your house functioned, were they traditions that your parents had brought over from home was that kind of a product of being the child of immigrant parents
1: I think so I think immigrant parents um I mean obviously this is generalizing but a lot of the people I've spoken to can relate to the experience of okay I need to do something successful with my life I need to make my parents sacrifices their displacement all their hard work the fact that they didn't get to achieve all their dreams I've got to somehow make that worthwhile for them and I remember feeling that really acutely and not even questioning it. It just seemed like the obvious right thing to do. Um, and it seemed almost selfish to put ahead of that your own um desires or to live in just a self-interested way so it wasn't something that I stood there and challenged constantly it was more like okay how do I navigate this so that I get the best outcome for everyone
0: but that's the best outcome that's like outward facing it's it's almost based on what other people think of you when you're doing that definitely
1: and I mean w- there, there's a lot of again common to the migrant experience that that living with the um the the looming presence of what will people say if you don't do this and if you don't do that. So I remember being so aware of how important it was to be good at school, how important it was to get a job and be traditionally successful. Um, And that meant, you know, I've talked about previously not thinking of my art making as something serious, not thinking of even any kind of creative um, career as a serious option. And I became interested... In the law, um, as I was thinking about what I wanted to do after school, and um, that seemed like, you know, the right balance between what I was interested in doing and what was seen as respected, um, important job to have <laughs> with, with financial stability and, you know, a title and a profession and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's kind of part of the thinking that put me on the path to law school.
0: Yeah. And I, I do want to come back to that because law ended up playing a really big role in your life. I, I want to talk about outward facing expectations and that idea of what will people think because the values that your family are instilling on you as someone growing up with immigrant parents were kind of different to the values at the time in terms of, you know, music in the 90s and girl power and the expectation of you to be empowered and love your womanhood by (laughs) the Spice Girls. Let's talk about that because those those messages were quite different in the media to the messages you had at home, weren't they? Yeah,
1: definitely. So, growing up in the 90s where you know our icons (laughs) at that time while living in this strict household were people like Britney Spears and um the Spice Girls and seeing that version this like hyper feminine performance type um femininity and trying to fit that into (laughs) what I you know what I was being brought up to see as the ideal um was was so interesting and it's funny because you end up relating to that music somehow on some level, even though it's kind of not really a reflection of your reality at all. And um, I loved, uh, I remember like Destiny's Child being like definitive <laughs> of my year five, year six life and um, really believing that the the Barbie doll experience was what we were all going to grow up towards and then later realising that I actually had all these expectations <laughs> to meet that were very different to what as a little girl was presented as you know this is what women look like and this is how they can be we used to go to Arabic school my sisters and I during this period and our Arabic school was you know a Saturday school at a primary school in Arncliffe and across the road my uncle had a corner shop so at recess we would be allowed to cross the road and buy junk food at the corner shop and we used to buy all these lollipops and lollies and little things like that that had little Spice girl stickers on the inside And then I'd go home and stick them all over the front of this folder that I had. And I remember my dad seeing it one time and being horrified at how these women were dressed, and obviously I got a long lecture about that. But then looking back, um, I realised that the lecture focused on the appearance of the women and what I should appear um, and how I should present myself uh, in in contrast to that rather than delving into, for example, values or creative expression or, you know, how to live your life outside of that external gaze. So in, in experiencing that, I think that was a great example of two um, completely different things being um, looked at but purely on that superficial level. And I think later, having lived in this what will people say, what do people look like environment, I began to realize that I had a lot to unlearn because I'd been focused, brought up to focus so much on the outside appearance of things. And that meant that I was disconnected from my um, core values. I was struggling to make um, decisions as a young person outside of what will people think, you know, and even choosing to do a creative career um, ended up being this moment where I was like, okay, I've got to let go of these things that I was taught were really, really, really important to who you are and, Um, how you are respected as a person and I've got to find my own authentic um, way of living.
0: I'm so excited for later in the show where we get to talk about what that authentic way of living looks like and the way that you've gone on to express yourself. First, let's jump into a song. While we're talking about strong women and girl power, you've chosen a track by Destiny's Child to play today. Tell me about that. So jumping jumping by Destiny's Child
1: reminds me of putting the little butterfly clips in my hair, riding my bike up the street with my friend, <laughs> and living this like carefree moment because I think in all childhoods even though there are some really difficult and sad things to navigate, there are these little moments that sparkle and stand out as as being, you know, examples of joy. So that really takes me back.
0: It's jumpin' jumpin' by Destiny's Child on FBI Radio 94.5. <laughs>
1: and your club is jumping.
0: Destiny's Child, it was Jumpin' Jumpin' on FBI Radio ninety four point five. Right now on Out of the Box, I'm speaking to artist, mother, advocate for women's safety and writer, Amani Haider Earlier, you mentioned that you settled on law as your career path. I'm putting words in your mouth now, but it seemed like it almost struck a medium between, you know, what your parents wanted for you and what you wanted for yourself. Was that the only thing that attracted you to law? Was there something that made it sparkle for you
1: yeah I I loved the idea of becoming a lawyer for more than just those reasons I liked the idea that um, I liked the idea of justice I had this romanticized concept of it in my head I really after losing my grandmother in such an unjust way I had a sense of frustration at the world at the fact that there was no procedure to follow that no closure um the incident that my grandmother was killed in was investigated by human rights watch as a potential war crime but then nothing seemed to flow from that and i just thought well do we just kind of now get on with our lives (laughs) and just accept that there's no accountability um no mechanism to to kind of heal from that you just kind of get on with it and um i remember thinking about that a lot and that kind of made me really interested in human rights I was doing well in legal studies at school. I had a great legal studies teacher who, I I mean, I was so lucky to get exposure to social justice concepts in the classroom at that young age. And I became increasingly interested in human rights and advocacy as a way of, um, I guess, pursuing justice in these circumstances where, you know, we hardly ever see accountability. And I guess that put me... On that, that I guess that gave me the extra motivation I needed to make that choice and to commit to studies. And I loved, I loved law school.
0: Later in the show, I want to come back to that idea of law as an avenue for justice because I wonder if throughout the course of your life that opinion has evolved at all but yeah let's let's go to law school. It is the place where Moi comes into the story. Your beautiful husband, my favorite character in the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my God, he's everyone's favorite character somehow <laughs> <laughs> so yeah how how did you come to meet Moi? So we met in the beginning of uni, but we kind of I think I describe it as living parallel lives because he didn't like ask me out or approach me or anything until um towards the end of our degrees. But we were friends and we had mutual friends and I think it's nice to sort of get to know people without the pressure of a relationship, without the pressure of your um, families needing to be involved from the onset, um, without the pressure of, oh, will we get married or will we not get married, you know? Um, And that, I think, makes a more honest sort of experience and I think we kind of got to know each other organically. Um, And, yeah, then in the final year of uni I started to notice oh like I think this guy likes me
0: (laughs) what made you think
1: that oh he got shy in my presence I think I think it's sort of just um I sensed a shift in the nature of our interactions and um you know he eventually was just like oh well um can we go out and um what, what you know, do you think there's any chance? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, I have really strict parents. Like they're going to be like, you need to know what you're doing. You need to be planning to get engaged or planning to get married. It needs to be serious. Um, and in my community, you don't date without dating for marriage. So it's kind of like, um, a bit black and white. And here we were in a little bit of a gray area. Um, but I mean, in, ultimately (laughs) we did get married and i think that was the just the most um probably one of the best decisions i'd ever made and um you know as time went by and even now i continuously appreciate you know how important it is to have safe respectful relationships in your life um that are built on mutual trust and that are solid and have strong foundations Um, especially when a lot of other people are going to let you down.
0: How did your parents react to, you know, the news that you'd found your husband? Yeah, so we
1: were a bit nervous because we're from different Muslim sects and different parts of Lebanon. And a lot of families encourage their children to marry from other like families from within their own community or their own village or their own particular religious sect. And I was conscious of those things and always kind of been, you know, assumed that it just wouldn't really pop up. <laughs> and then when it did, I was like, okay, well, it's not a problem for me. Um our values are so well matched, our careers um are matched, we have similar interests. Why not just see what my parents say? And so we waited until we we'd finished our degrees so that they wouldn't be like, oh, you haven't finished university yet. <laughs> um finished our degrees got our admission certificates. And then I just said to them, okay, there's this guy who's interested and he wants to meet you. I describe in more detail how that played out in the book. So (laughs) I'm not going to ruin it now. But um, ultimately, I was surprised. They they were pretty happy with it. And when they met him, I think they were even happier. So things kind of fell into place. And
0: before you married Moe, had you lived out of home? No, I hadn't.
1: And like culturally, culturally it wouldn't have been acceptable to do that. And I would never even actually considered it. And I think it's obviously a privilege to be able to get your own place in Sydney, but um, it was always just assumed that you move out when you get married. So then getting married and moving out was this really exciting thing. Cause that was like adventure, you know, we're going to be adults now. We can do whatever we want.
0: You know? Yeah. You can stay <laughs> can up late.
1: Travel or stay up late. Watch, watch too scary many movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> Eat so much ice cream. Nobody's going to say no, you know, so It was, I mean, we were relatively young at the time, like we were 23 and 24, I think. So um, it was exciting. It was such a lovely period in my life. And there was this sense of optimism. There was this sense of like, oh, okay, this is like happily ever after it's going to happen, you know. Um, But obviously you have to sort of (laughs) realise at some point that that's kind of unrealistic and life doesn't just stop and the goal of life is not to get married.
0: (laughs) The happily ever after coming to a halt for you is probably really different to happily ever after coming to a halt for other people and I want to talk about that after a song Mm -hmm. it's a song that played at your wedding with the Moe yeah
1: at every Lebanese (laughs) wedding
0: at every Lebanese wedding so shout out to Lebanese weddings what are we going to play today we're playing let's get
1: married by Jagged
0: Edge get married by jagged edge on fbi radio the song was chosen by my guest on out of the box amani haydar who also played that song at her wedding just a quick content warning for this part of the show. We will be talking about domestic and family violence. If that does bring anything to the surface for you or you just need to talk to someone, you can call the 1-800 Respect National Helpline on 1-800-737-732. Armani, let's jump back into this period of your life where we left things. You've just married Moe. Things are looking great. You're an adult. You're staying up late, you're eating ice cream. And not too long after the wedding, you fall pregnant with your first baby. Congratulations. Tell me about that. I didn't think I would be interested in having kids so quickly,
1: but I was sort of doing well in my job and I felt ready and I was like kind of bored. Like <laughs> I, I kind of, again, still having this sense of idealism, thinking that you could have a baby and that would be like a holiday from work and it would be a nice time and you could do up the nursery and all that and Um, Yeah, so I was like, oh, I think I'm ready to have a break from work and I'll have a child and that'll be nice. Totally underestimating what motherhood involves, totally underestimating the toll it would take, totally just, you know, relying on everything being perfect Um, and very quickly learning that that's probably not going to be the case in the long term.
0: Your first couple of years in motherhood were particularly difficult as well. Let's jump across to a different marriage, the marriage between your mum and your dad, what was that looking like at this point in your life?
1: Yeah. So things between my parents were like, they'd always been like in a state of constant flux. And by this point, my mum had a few times asked for a divorce, being denied that request. Um, My dad was really good at drawing her back in, making promises, saying all the right things and kind of convincing her to try again and at the same time shaming the concept of divorce, making it more of a taboo. I mean, it was a taboo anyway in my community, but kind of emphasising that to, as a way of controlling my mum's decision-making. Um, so things like, oh, you've got children, you know, it's not appropriate to get divorced. You'll be breaking up the family. And I think my mum really felt the pressure of again, those going back to expectations and what will people say? Of what what is a good mum? What is a good wife? How do you be like this perfect accomplished woman? Um, she by that point had built a career. She'd gone to TAFE. She'd worked as a counsellor. She'd worked in community welfare. She was um, enrolled in a bachelor of social work at Western Sydney University. So her life was actually growing in a lot of different directions, and. Um, she was even at the point where she could name things like he's controlling me or he's gaslighting me or I feel like I'm being controlled when I go to make a decision. And, um, you know, he makes promises that don't actually have any follow through. So she was navigating, you know, how do I take steps to build my independence in such a way that I can gradually move out of this relationship? So they just, after I got married, they sold the family home. Um, they split their assets. They each bought their own property. My mum moved into her own Villa. My dad didn't move into the property. He bought, he rented it out. And then it convinced my mum that he should live with her, um, and try again. And that's kind of where we were at. It was a bit of a limbo. Um, my brother at the time was incarcerated. So there was additional pressure, I think from that and blame. Um, and there was just this like sense of gloom um in the family home, so I remember whenever we visited my husband and I, I'd be like, "Oh, that was just like so tense and negative, you know that negative feeling because I think I think things were getting um building up and getting worse, and my mum was wanting to separate, and they were in this weird limbo where she was separating from him and he was kind of clinging on.
0: Your dad, during this time, went back to Lebanon. What was the reason for that trip? So his mum was sick and he got a call and it was, um, you know, you got
1: to come visit her, this might be your last chance. Um, We're not getting so, you know, good news from the doctors. When he got there, um, he realised that she'd forgotten who he was um and she could remember my uncles but not him um and then while he was there um another person from the family someone from the family passed away his mum didn't pass away at that point actually um but she was she was unwell and i think again like um I, i i struggle obviously to piece together that that period and to make sense of my dad's behavior but he came back earlier than expected Um, and that came as a bit of a surprise. Yeah.
0: While he was away, you'd gone on a coffee date with your mum. What was significant about that conversation that you had with her?
1: Yeah. So I describe in my book, um, sort of the details of that conversation, but I think what's important to mention is that she was kind of identifying a red flag in this moment and I was kind of missing it or dismissing it. Um, I'm not quite sure. It's it's hard to put your finger on because you don't expect people that you know and love and grew up with to be a risk. You don't perceive them in that way, especially if you haven't been given the knowledge and the and been empowered to be able to name abuse and confront her and know where to go. And, um, you know, you just kind of see it as this, like, black and white thing. And my dad didn't seem to me like a risk because he wasn't physically – abusive throughout my childhood um i mean there were some incidents that i I explore in the book but i didn't associate him as to to being an abuser i just thought of him as like this really smart guy you know and um yeah so when my mum mentioned something that was a bit of a red flag and we were so used to like all these red flags (laughs) being constantly mentioned and nobody really caring or just overlooking them um I did have this moment where I was like, what do you mean? And we kind of just then smiled away the conversation and just continued our day. And I think people need to realize that abuse can be so insidious and so subtle that it might not jump out at the people who are in it. That's your part of your environment. You don't even realize that it's toxic until you've had the opportunity to build that language, build that awareness and actually have some hindsight. Um, and be like oh that wasn't actually okay I didn't feel good that whole time (laughs) something must have not been right you know. Yeah so
0: you have you have this conversation with your mum these red flags emerge they're really hard to see and then your dad comes back from Lebanon what happened next?
1: So when my dad came back the day he returned obviously I, I I didn't I hadn't seen him yet I was at work and my sister just messaged me to say dad's back kind of thing and The murder took place that evening when my mum got home from work and we were then, um, you know, we found out through our relatives and our cousins. And I guess that's when that moment kind of signified to me this culmination of events.
0: I'm really sorry to hear that. That's awful. And, yeah, in, in your book you detail that event more and you talk about the days and weeks following the murder and the way the situation was treated by your dad's side of the family I'm not going to make you talk about that now because it's really horrific. Instead, we're going to skip ahead to the trial. What was your involvement in the trial?
1: Yeah, so the trial happened two years after the murder. And in that two years, we've been given loose updates from the Crown about what what they kind of expected, what was going to take place. And basically, my dad was pleading not guilty by reason of mental impairment. He he was alleging That he didn't know what he was doing. And that was incredibly frustrating for my sisters and I, who by this point had a strong sense that he did know what he was doing and that there was a clear intention in his actions. Um, The trial ended up being the most re traumatizing thing. And even until the last minute, I just thought, oh, my dad's surely still got some sense in him that he'll not let this go ahead. He'll plead guilty. Like, it's just so obvious, you know. Maybe he'll do that. (laughs) And I was kind of hoping that we wouldn't have to go through it at all because the idea of confronting him, confronting my family, um, giving evidence, receiving all this, like, public attention from the media was so intimidating and terrifying. And then on top of that, the uncertainty of not knowing what the verdict is going to be what you're going to hear in evidence, what the sentence will be, whether your grief and your pain and your sense of loss is actually going to be reflected in the outcome. You have no sense of control as a victim of crime and a lot of people don't realise that. Some people seem to think that the criminal justice system gives victims like the opportunity to, to do things or to pursue the criminal. That's not really how it works. You're just a witness. You're like a member of the public in some cases. If you don't have, if you don't get called to give give evidence, you're observing the proceedings. Um, so it was really confronting and I became aware as well, like if this is this bad for me and I was a commercial litigator, I'd practiced in courtrooms, I understood the proceedings, you know, in a general sense. I hadn't practiced criminal law, um, but I, I knew what a courtroom looked like. I knew how evidence worked it was still the most confronting experience of my life. And eventually I was in the witness box having to face my dad who I hadn't seen since before the murder and actually confront the fact that he was abusive and confront the fact that he had committed a murder and speak about the reasons why, you know, um, that I guess the things that I had sort of could remember or could give evidence on that could contribute to that picture. But, um, yeah, I think then I had to, any kind of healing or recovery that I'd experienced in the two years between the murder and the trial just kind of collapsed in that moment. It was just relinquished. back at square one. Like, you know, it was as if it had just happened.
0: And, and being in the witness box, does that give you the tools to adequately detail, you know, the relationship that you'd seen between your parents throughout your whole life or was this murder treated as a one-off.
1: So murders are generally like all treated kind of the same. Um, The fact that it occurred in the DV context, for example, um, is given a little bit of weight, but it doesn't actually change the way that the trial is run. Um, I was disappointed by my experience in the witness box. I felt this great burden to sort of help, like to, and also help not just as, you know, my mum's daughter, but also kind of help as a lawyer, like trying Mm. to think of the case. and, and contribute meaningfully but um it was a huge pressure to be expecting this process and this system to somehow capture my mum's experience and to hear her um, and validate her pain and I remember leaving the witness box with quite a sense of disorientation and disappointment and no it wasn't it wasn't satisfying there was no closure in that moment it was completely i felt like a deer in headlights like (laughs) you know and like i said i'm familiar with the courtroom i'd sat in a witness box before um it was just awful and i felt and i I, the the way i kind of told the story in the book is a bit different um to you know how i'm describing it now because it's a lot more detailed but i did feel like the questioning was so direct to what was relevant to the um, courtroom that things that I thought were important or interesting or like the nuances and complexities of my mum's life just didn't come through at all. And I, in the process of writing the book, actually got all the transcripts, got the judgment. The judgment alone is 75 pages. So there's a lot of information. But I wanted to get across to the reader what that experience was like. And one of the things that shocked me was that my experience of giving evidence had seen, had sort of dominated all of my memories. It was the most, you know, um, stressful thing. And I felt like it went on for ages. And then when I read the transcript, it had only gone on for 25 minutes. So it's this, this the way that trauma affects your memory and affects your um, your ability to control what's happening and understand it is so profound. Um, but, yeah, that that was not not the not the experience that I was hoping for to be honest
0: talking about the limitations of of law and how it can't always understand nuance at the start of the show we were talking about your initial interest in law as an avenue for justice and something that facilitated justice did that opinion evolve after this trial
1: yeah definitely i i did lose a lot of that idealism i lost my um sense that i that i was like destined to be a lawyer i lost that sense of comfort that i was developing in the courtroom i haven't been in one since like that makes me a little nervous just talking about it now you know um so it really did completely change my sense of self my sense of purpose my idealism my you know looking at the system as something that you know we can use that to To achieve justice we can use that to um, find the truth Um, and I began to really question that and think about how do we explore the stories and the issues that are missed by these processes how do we create a picture and find a truth and describe life experience in a way that doesn't depend on you know an institution um, validating it how do we live outside this mechanism that I've you know for a long time thought of as that's the arbiter arbiter of what 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 is and what isn't, you know so it was it was an interesting experience, and that's what prompted me to begin exploring creative practice, it prompted me to think about how I could um share my mum's experiences with the with the public in a way that didn't um wasn't restricted by the rules of evidence and the
0: rules of um a courtroom. I want to jump into a song. It's one of your mum's favourites. What have you chosen? So I've chosen a song by Tracy Chapman,
1: Give Me One Reason. My mum loved Tracy Chapman's voice and we would listen to her when I was young. And then I rediscovered Tracy Chapman when I was older and still living at home. And I was inspired to buy a guitar because I thought I could teach myself to play a guitar using YouTube. And very quickly discovered that that was a lot harder than it's than it seemed (laughs) I broke the string didn't know even where to go to repair it or what to do and it's just sitting around my house now waiting for me to maybe one day pick it up again
0: (laughs) decoration (laughs) it looks good yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is give me one reason by Tracy Chapman you're listening to out of the box on FBI radio listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman and it was chosen by my guest on the show, Amani Hader, who just revealed at some point had tried to learn this song on guitar. Amani, your creative endeavors don't end there. Where were you in life when you began taking interest in painting?
1: Yeah, so the guitar was definitely a failed creative endeavor, <laughs> but um I started to take an interest in painting Actually, as a little kid, it was a hobby all throughout my life. And it was never something that I thought of in very serious terms as a career or a professional pursuit. But after losing mum and experiencing the grief around that and being on maternity leave at home and starting to think about how do I express this huge thing that's happened to me in a way that feels safe, in a way that doesn't attract like, you know, all this like media attention and in a way that retains a sense of control Um, I began to develop my creative practice at home and that started as a Kmart trolley full of supplies some paper and then just like sitting on the ground after like um, a long day and drawing and exploring ideas and looking at what other artists are doing online and um, just kind of developing a habit of thinking creatively at least for half an hour each day and that kind of just like snowballed and I decided in 2018 to enter the Archibald Prize um, because I felt that I had a lot that I wanted to say um, and the best way that I could say it at the time was through visual
0: art. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your Archibald Prize submission. It's such a powerful piece. How would you describe it to someone who maybe hasn't seen it before?
1: Um, so basically it's a self-portrait of, you know, my, me <laughs> um, holding a picture of my mum. And in that picture, my mum is holding a picture of her mum. And the picture I used was initially taken by Fairfax Media in 2006 when they came to interview us after my my, my grandmother's death overseas. So it was like just this... Um, forgotten image and in the days after the murder um someone somewhere in the media linked the two incidents together and realized that my mum had previously been in the news with this other tragic story and to me that kind of like just represented like you know how how much grief had taken place but also how much i could relate to my mum's experience that she lost her mum violently that there had been this flurry of attention and then kind of nothing. Um, and the fact that that must have caused her so much hurt and so much pain that we didn't really take the time to think about when it was happening. So this image kind of just like formed in my head and I was like, I've got to do this painting. But then I had all these doubts, which were like, you didn't go to art school and who are you to call yourself an artist? And do you have the right paint? And do you have the right canvas? <laughs> all of these little things that, just bubbled up that were really affecting my confidence. And then I just had this moment where I was like, you know what, you don't actually need permission. You pay an entry fee and you submit and you don't lose anything. So I just did it. And then I was obviously blown away by the fact that it was selected as a finalist and hung at the art gallery of New South Wales. And that was such an important moment for me and a milestone because it was my first time, really engaging with the public about my mum's experiences in my own words, in my own way, um, rather
0: than being the subject. I'm interested too in the way it was a Fairfax image because in the final product, there's a Fairfax watermark on the image that you're holding. Why is it there?
1: Yeah. So that was a choice that was made on the fly. I started that painting, I think about 10 days before submissions were due. And (laughs) so I was working to a deadline And the only way that you could get that image for free was to just print it straight off the internet. And that meant that it would have a watermark. And if you actually wanted the proper image or printed in color or on photo paper, you had to pay. So I just was thinking about, you know, like it's weird who owns our experiences and who actually gets to benefit from them. Um, And then I just decided, you know what? The reality is that it's there with a watermark and that's how I can access it now. And it actually says a lot. So I printed it off on my home printer and stuck it on the canvas. And I was like, that's just what we're going to have to live with right now. (laughs) And it ended up being quite powerful because the painting is titled insert headline here. And it really is a commentary on the fact that these violent things keep happening. They get reported on nothing changes. It's not as unique a story as it sounds. There's countless women around the world living in occupation or armed conflict and experiencing patriarchy within their own home as well. And I really did want to draw the link between state-sanctioned violence and domestic violence and how patriarchal violence happens on all levels of society, not just in the home. It might seem easier or more manageable to think of DV as being this like isolated issue, but I don't really think that you can solve any problem in isolation. And that kind of is the broader issue that I wanted to speak to.
0: The artwork speaks volumes of money it's it's quite remarkable to look at was the process of making that therapeutic for you I think
1: everything creative has an element of being therapeutic it did feel like I'd kind of made some meaning out of all these incohesive experiences and thoughts that I was having um it felt like I had reclaimed a little bit of my own agency. I was a confident person before this crime. I had a career that was flourishing. I had, you know, my own opinion and my perspective and um, would do public speaking and things like that. And so much of that had been lost um, because of my trauma, because of the the anxiety and the depression that followed my mum's death. Um, The fact that I was now a mother with two kids and no longer able to easily, you know, move through society. So for me, there was a sense of um, satisfaction in getting back, like, a little bit of that. And, you know, here's what I have to say and here I am and it's me and this is my mom, and this is my grandmother and don't look away. Um, so there, there, was, there was, it was an empowering moment, I think. I think my art uh, is both, like, my personal story, it's my political commentary, it ties in with my advocacy, it ties in with... The same you know things that make me made me love the law like you know we can speak about justice we can speak about our context and have um, a voice and engage in storytelling through these visual media and at the same time it can be something profoundly beautiful that people will then stop and pay attention to and empathize with and when you've experienced trauma one of the definitive things about that is losing your sense of connection to other people to society and i remember feeling so incredibly isolated and one of the most therapeutic things about making art and then sharing it with others was starting to reconnect reconnecting with you know women who saw something in my work that just made them feel that it was relatable without me having to put that in words without me to have you know actually pointing it out or spelling it out it was almost um communicating on a totally emotional level and that's so powerful especially because a lot of the time you you don't have the tools to immediately put your trauma into words you don't have the tools to immediately say you know this is what happened and this is why it happened but you might have the tools to express it through creative um, practice.
0: Yeah yeah it speaks to what we've been talking about throughout this interview which is finding the language to talk about abuse and and trauma. I'm interested in what you just said about how your art speaks to the things that initially made you fall in love with law because moving into the art world marked your separation from law, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it did. And initially I did think of them as these separate pursuits. But and I actually remember that when I was standing next to my portrait at the art gallery, someone came up to me and was like, oh, you're the artist. Um, oh, it's so interesting that you, you're you both a lawyer and an artist that means you use your left and your right brain. And I was like, I never thought of it that way. This is the product of the exact same brain (laughs) and I'm the same person. Mm -hmm. And you don't sit there and say, oh, I'm going to switch between, you know, my left side and my right side. And (laughs) it's more like, um, how can I most effectively convey this experience? And at one point in my life, the law seemed like the most obvious choice for that. And I started to realize that I had a lot of untapped creative energy and that it could really fill the gaps um that I'd witnessed in my father's trial, and it just seemed to be the same thing, and they both kind of serve the same purpose in my life. I see them both as being important parts of um any kind of advocacy and activism you you want to be you want to be bringing in these multidisciplinary forces and working towards a common goal, and I think that for me. Um, art and law kind of come together in that way.
0: That's such a beautiful description. I imagine you approaching cases in law and visualising outcomes. Let's get into some commentary right now on FBI. You've chosen a song by Prince. I want to know why you chose this song, but also I would love it if you could tell this story about the artwork that kind of relates to this song.
1: So I love listening to Prince when I'm painting because he his lyrics are often quite visual. He uses a lot of color references, and I painted a painting in 2009, 2019 called Little Red Corvette, and it's basically these two women with their hijabs billowing in the wind, um, riding in a Corvette and doing kind of like a burnout on the street and just having the time of their lives. And it's such a joyful painting um, and at the same time just a commentary on you know how we imagine people to be and what they might what their inner world might look like and yeah it's it's my little um, re- Prince reference built into that painting.
0: Amazing we'll jump into that one right now on Out of the Box it's Prince and Little Red Corvette. I say the ride right is you must be and you listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming on the website, that was Prince. The song was called Little Red Corvette, and it was chosen by my guest on the show today, Amani Hader. Amani is a mother, writer, artist, advocate, and has just published her book, The Mother Wound. I want to jump into the beginning of the book. It starts off at the birth of your first baby, Amani. Why did you pick that as a starting point? I think
1: motherhood was such a pivotal moment in my life. And unfortunately, it occurred under such difficult circumstances. So I was five months pregnant when my mum was murdered. I was experiencing an at-risk pregnancy. I had some, you know, um, complications already happening and then was told by the hospital Oh you've got to really look after your mental health now because experiencing something like this while you're pregnant puts you as um at an increased risk of postnatal depression. When my daughter was born I then struggled with like uh breastfeeding and a bunch of other things and it just seemed that in that moment of giving birth all my so much grief and pain had culminated and um I found myself thinking about my grandmother and my mother and then the next generation and how do i as a parent put a stop to um, this this violence how do i protect my child from having the experiences that i've had that my mother has had um and how do i um challenge the world so that i can contribute to a safer um, society for my daughter and everybody else's kids um so really it just seemed um quite a natural choice to start in that moment where almost everything is happening at once you're talking about death, you're talking about life, it's all these um, uh, cycles and um moments kind of coming together in my pain in the delivery room, and it's so heightened, and I think it's just um yeah a a, a really powerful
0: moment to start with I want to go further into what you were just saying about you know how how do I make a better life for my kids because now you're the mother of two how do those ideals look in practice when you're trying to build a safer world for them what does that look like
1: I think firstly I've become quite aware of how we um, reinforce gender stereotypes and limits in our children's lives not just stereotypes because they'll come from all directions either way But if you impose limitations to your child's potential, then they're not going to see the alternatives to those stereotypes and imagine themselves living um, outside of that and living to their full potential and being the best person that they can be. Um, So for me, it's it's a bit of that. And at the same time, being conscious of how my own physical and mental well-being has been affected by trauma. And it's very difficult to put a stop to intergenerational trauma if you're not able to heal and focus on yourself. And a lot of mums don't have the opportunity to access that support. Um, For me, I I was lucky to, you know, be able to get some counselling immediately after the murder to follow through with some counselling after my daughter was born and to still be able to access counselling and support now. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that that's not a universal experience and a lot of people live with trauma for a really long time before they're able to get support for it and by that point you might have um developed a bunch of habits or coping mechanisms that are not necessarily the best way to be raising children or the most um positive way to be you know shaping their lives and that's not a conscious thing and mums are not just doing that you know for the heck of it it's it's a failure of society I think to support women properly and to support mothers properly and it kind of goes back to this idea that motherhood is just this like totally natural experience and it should just come naturally to you. It doesn't. Um, I spent hours and hours and hours on Google <laughs> looking things up <laughs> when my daughter was born. I wanted to know things about my own infancy. I wanted to know what childbirth was like for my mom, what breastfeeding was like for my mom. I didn't really care what other people had to say. I really wanted her experience and her perspective, and I regretted not asking those questions. And I think maybe the most powerful thing to sort of add to all that for me has been, you know, actually going back and documenting my grandmother's life and my mum's life now in a book. Um, Having that preserved so that my kids can access whatever, whatever I've been able to put together feels like I've done what I can to pass on that knowledge to pass on some of my heritage. Um, you know, unfortunately, there there are lots of things I don't know. There are lots of things that I've lost. I've lost access to, you know, what my mum might have been able to tell me. Um, if we, if, you know, as both of us being adults, both of us being mothers, I've lost access to, you know, what was my grandmother's life like outside of just what I knew about her. So I've done what I can to piece that together and hope that my children will be able to have that knowledge and um be proud of the women that um raised me and um really hold on to their the, what what they've passed on and how how you know you can actually really be proud of that because they were so strong and so um multidimensional and interesting and um just these big characters.
0: Yeah, I I guess there are a lot of ways that you're raising your children differently to the way that you were raised, but one big similarity is that they will have strong women around. You've in a way kept your mum's story alive in this book, The Mother Wound, but you've found other avenues for doing that as well. Tell me about those. So I've continued painting. I
1: participate in lived experience advocacy. So I volunteer on the board of the local women's health centre. I've been doing that for a while. I've done quite a bit of um, public speaking around my mum's experiences contributed to you know papers and policy submissions and things like that to um, kind of share my experience in those broader conversations, which I think can be quite powerful. And I don't think any one lived experience can really override or should be like louder than the others. I think it's a collective um, project. And that women's safety depends on those various viewpoints all being heard and considered so for me it's been um, a matter of combining my art my writing and my advocacy uh, to just I guess contribute in the most meaningful way and make them you know make I mean it's hard to say make the most experiences because that sounds like you're kind of like trying to turn this like really negative thing that is still negative into something positive but to make sure that um, whatever I can do, I'm able to contribute meaningfully to the existing conversations and hopefully see some change in my life and um, see that for my kids.
0: Amani Haida, thank you so much for jumping on Out of the Box today. This has been such a privilege to talk to you about these things. Thank you. It's been
1: a pleasure speaking with you.
0: I understand that one more similarity you and your mum have is the school run with your kids. (laughs) Tell me about the last song you picked today.
1: Okay so the last song I've picked is Take Me On by AHA. My kids love this song. I've revived a lot of 80s classics (laughs) for the school run because they remind me of being dropped off at school by my own mum and I'm hoping that I can sort of pass on those little moments of joy um, and share them with my children in the same way that my mum shared them with us and uh, turn the school run into something that can be a little bit fun, not just
0: stressful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a daggy mum song, you reckon? It is. It's is, It's the best one to drive around the area <laughs> to, with two kids in the back. <laughs> Granting you permission to be a daggy parent and turn this up if you're in the car with your kids right now, it's Take Me On by AHA, as chosen by my guest on Out of the Box Today, Amani Haydar. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can listen on the podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the programs page on fbiradio.com. Also on the programs page, I'll put some links to resources from this episode so that you can find Amani's book that we've been talking about throughout the show, The Mother Wound, and her Instagram so that you'll be able to view some of her art. I'll also put links to domestic and family violence resources If this episode did bring anything to the surface for you or you just need to talk to someone, you can call the 1-800-RESPECT National Helpline on 1-800-737-732. A huge shout-out to executive producer Glenn who read Imani's book in preparation for this episode. And stick around. Lunch up next. FBI. FBI.